the topic of my lecture is the road has many stories, encounters between the states and the citizens of the different Ghanas. I've selected this topic because the road literally and metaphorically has been important for much of my work, I've much of the work I've done in the last 30 years. As a Ghanaian proverb renders it, mozola shinyale, to wit, it is the traveler who has things to say. There are many things the road has taught me. It has shown me that the quality and density of our road networks matter for all aspects of life in Ghana. The further you travel from Accra and other regional capitals, the worse the roads get until they peter into nothing. This can make a journey of a few kilometers excruciatingly long, expensive, and even life-threatening. I've also learned that bad roads often lead to destinations where people live with deficits in the quality of their lives. The road is therefore a metaphor for the state of the social contract between citizens in, and the states in Ghana. In this lecture, I reflect on the deficits of this contract. My topic is important not only because it has animated my intellectual endeavors of the past 30 years, <clears throat> but also because it concerns the global and national conjuncture where the experiences of COVID-19 have generated a lively commentary about state-society relations. The great suffering that has accompanied lockdowns, border closures, and other containment measures has exposed to all of us the fact that the economic and social systems of neoliberal globalization were not designed to deal with unexpected crises. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has highlighted a troubling fact of growing inequalities between, between and within regions, countries, and communities in several important speeches he has made since the pandemic. Unrest, Oxfam, and many others have issued reports which highlight the contraction of economies, the loss of jobs and livelihood opportunities, the growing immigration of many citizens, the unacceptable inequalities between the haves and the have-nots, and the accompanying tensions in society. The Oxfam report argues, and I quote, the coronavirus pandemic has the potential to lead to an increase in inequality in almost every country at once. The first time this has happened since records began, the virus has exposed, fed off, and increased existing inequalities of wealth, gender, and race. Over two million people have died and hundreds of millions are being forced into poverty while many of the richest individuals and corporations are thriving. Billionaire fortunes returned to their pre-pandemic highs in just nine months while recovery for the world's poorest people could take over a decade. This crisis has exposed our collective frailty and the, and the inability of our deeply an equal economy to work for all." End of quote. For us in Ghana, these issues, as well as the elevated levels of insecurity, civil strife, coup d'etats, and national disintegration in the West Africa region should give us cause to pause, reflect, and, and take preventive and remedial measures. 
The map you see on this slide tells a very sad story about the lives that are being destroyed by conflicts in West Africa. The Independence Declaration promised one Ghana. The directive principles of state policy of the 1992 Constitution, particularly sections 35 to 39, constitute an agenda for national integration, or if you will, one Ghana. Section 36.1 enjoins the state to take all necessary action to manage the national economy in a manner that maximizes the rate of economic development, secures the maximum welfare, freedom, and happiness of every person in Ghana, and provides adequate means of livelihood and suitable employment. Section 36.2 sets out several underlying principles for a sound and healthy economy, and they include an even and balanced development of all regions and every part of each region. Improving the conditions of life in rural and urban areas and redressing imbalances between rural and urban areas. And also the recognition that the most secure democracy is the one that assures the basic necessities of life for its people as a fundamental duty. Sadly, the Ghanaian state and its agencies increasingly spend more time worrying about political party manifesto promises than on working with citizens to fulfill their provisions in our constitution. As a result, the experiences of citizenship are structured by whether you live in northern or southern Ghana, rural or urban Ghana, a rich or poor region, whether your home is a residential area or an unplanned settlement, whether your workplace is an office, an open-air market, the roadside, or a home, and whether you have an employer or not. Even within the same spaces, citizens may be living in different Ghanas. My lecture examines some of these differences to draw attention to the implications for the quality of citizenship and for national integration. My outline is as follows, the outline of my lecture. To honor the fact that this is an inaugural lecture, I start with an examination of the influences of my research, the conditions of my intellectual production, and my fieldwork practice. I follow this with a brief exposition of approaches to the post-colonial state that are relevant to my lecture. I then present the different Ghanas in two ways. First, with official statistics about poverty and inequalities, and then with a discussion about the different kinds of communities that I have researched. I then end with some messages for further reflection. Being born in Akuse, a market town in the Volta region, and growing up in Accra New Town and Nima, two Accra suburbs inhabited by people from all over Ghana and West Africa, while occasionally visiting my mother's hometown, Sokwe in the Lower Volta, has influenced my research interests. It has also given me an expansive view of citizenship as an experience that is renewed daily in interactions with fellow citizens, community, and the state, and not simply a piece of paper or plastic obtained from the state. I came to research and academia through a series of incremental decisions. To fulfill my interest in research and writing about women, 
I applied to study at the Institute of Social Studies in the Netherlands on the advice of my dear sister and friend, Dr. Rosemary Sakutin. The ISS of the late 1980s was a melting pot with people with progressive ideas from all over the global south. I studied in the Women and Development Program at a time when the institutionalization of gender and women's studies as an academic field was in full swing. ISS provided me with a foundation and a global community of progressive scholars and activists, lifelong friends, a point of reference and accountability. In 1991, I came to ISE as a junior research fellow. Thus began three decades of a life-changing journey. The period coincided with the liberalization of higher education, the growing student numbers, and a crisis of funding. The financial constraints accompanied with the delegitimation of higher education and the lack of a credible research and development budget for public universities made it difficult for scholars such as myself to establish long-term research agendas. This, these challenging years have deepened the marginalization of Africa in global knowledge production. The ISA I joined was rebuilding itself after a leadership crisis. I was fortunate to be at a research institute that successfully repositioned itself and began to thrive under the leadership of successive directors. I have been even more fortunate to be involved in self-confident scholarly communities, which have inculcated in me the importance of Africa-led conversations about African realities, and also the validity and importance of feminist scholarship. My research has been anchored by multi-generational, multidisciplinary, and multi-locational scholarly networks, created through mutually beneficial partnerships with scholars in Africa, the Global South, and the Global North. In addition to collaborations with my colleagues at ISE and also at the Institute of African Studies, where I've been privileged to spend an amazingly productive six years, I want to acknowledge also CODESTRIA, the Gender and Women's Studies in Africa Network, SEGENSA, the Agrarian South Network, the Labor Law and Development Research Laboratory, Feminist Africa, the Pathways of Women's Empowerment Project, Future Agricultures Network, Land and Agricultural Commercialization Project, LACA, the Demeter Project, and the UNRIS Gender Program. In making my career, I faced the challenge of identifying myself as a feminist whose intellectual production is situated in gender and women's studies. GWS was not yet fully accepted by mainstream academia as a serious field of intellectual endeavor when I began work at ISE. Over the years, things have shifted slowly, and GWS has become quite influential in pushing the boundaries of knowledge and influencing policy, though not always on its own terms. GWS is still not fully acknowledged and integrated in mainstream knowledge production. This gives scholars such as myself an insider-outsider status. And this has been beneficial for my research, I think. In terms of my fieldwork practice, I feel privileged to have traveled across Ghana and conducted research in 13 of Ghana's 16 regions over my last 30 years. This has given me an acute sense of people in parts of Ghana that are world apart from the planned suburbs of Accra. The favorite part of my fieldwork is without question the reconnaissance study. 
Probably because it concerns the unknown and the thrill of discovering new parts of Ghana that I've never visited. Two such studies in the last 10 years stand out for me because of the roads we traveled, but also the company of colleague researchers from a wide range of disciplines and backgrounds. The first one is a Demeter project to study the implications of long-term land and agricultural commercialization for smallholder livelihoods and food security. And the second is the DC project, which examines the policing of resource conflicts between herders and farmers and between the states and small-scale miners. The Demeter research, reconnaissance research, was in 2015. It took us over 12 hours to get from Accra to Salaga in the Gonja East district of the northern region. A lot of the hours were eaten up by bad stretches of road, particularly after Hohwe, where we drove from through a green rain-refreshed mountainous terrain through KJB, Buem, and Inquanta areas, stopping at Kwasa. From Kwasa, we went to Bimbila and then to Salaga, where more hours of untired road under construction and tired roads that had deteriorated into a series of potholes met us. Several years later in 2019, during the DC reconnaissance, we took the same road to Bimbila, and the road had actually probably become worse. Given the state of the roads and the levels of insecurity on some stretches, I've rarely traveled at night unless it was necessary. One such instance was when after a productive day of interviews at Busunu and Damango, my colleague researcher, Akosia Dakwa, and I decided to spend the night at Mole National Park. Arriving there at 6 p.m., we were informed that this was not a walking place. So we began a long journey in the dark to Bole in the Savannah region and then to Wenchi in the Bono region with its strikingly bright street lights and wide street avenues. We got into our hotel for the night a little over 10 p.m. and 10 minutes later, a huge rainstorm came down. I still get scared when I remember the drive on that dark road through Sola to Bole, accompanied by the electoral predictions of our driver, a passionate supporter of one of the two main political parties in Ghana, <laughs> and the quiet presence of my travel companion who went to sleep on the rationale that it was better to be asleep if we were stopped by armed robbers. <laughs> Night travel is not the only source of insecurity on the road. One late afternoon, as we were driving through the forest reserve after a day of interviews at Esomora, we happened on a group of young men cutting up a felled tree. When our vehicle drove past them, they looked so menacing that for a while, no one in the bus said a word. <laughs> we did wonder later whether they were the outsiders who were informed were legally logging under the protection of some big men from the area. The point of these stories is that no matter how challenging the roads have been, we have been privileged to be occasional users with options not available to many of those whose lives have been heavily circumscribed by the poor state of our roads. These include the women who frequently travel these roads whose informal food distribution networks bring food from Burkina Faso and beyond to our tables. As we found in our study on Ghana's food systems during COVID-19, 
The insecurity on these roads is a direct threat to the lives and livelihoods of long-distance food traders and also to Ghana's food security. In conceptualizing the, um, the, the colonial state, my thoughts have been shaped by several intellectual traditions that have tried to explain the nature of the African state, its history, how well it performs, its various functions, and how it relates to various citizens. I'd like to briefly mention five approaches that speak to this lecture. They are the Marxist and neo-Marxist approach, the developmental state approach, the patrimonialism clientelism approach, the political settlements approach, and the patriarchal state approach. Time does not allow me a full exposition of these approaches, so I'll only highlight a few elements that are relevant. All the five traditions take as their starting point the fact of colonization and how it has influenced the post-colonial state. The broad agreement that the violence and dominant ideologies of the civilizing mission which accompanied the imposition of colonial rule have shaped the states that we inherited at independence. Current disparities between rural and urban areas and between centers of colonial accumulation and their peripheries and between men and women are all a result of the differences in colonial economies. The neo-Marxists have stressed the class character of the state and its control by imperialism and the capitalist classes as well as its urban bias which results in the exploitation of peasants and the working people. The neo-patrimonial school, the most prolific of all of these schools, flourished in the 1970s during the crisis of development. It found the state to be weak, incompetent, greedy, corrupt, involved in the politics of the belly, and therefore incapable of serving any interests except its own. The developmental state approach disputes this dim view of the state, arguing that Africa has had and can have developmental states. Developmental states, according to this approach, have two characteristics. The first is a hegemonic ideology of developmentalism, and the second is the capacity and the competence to deliver efficiently the development agenda through effective management of the economy. The political settlement approach for its part argues that the post-colonial state's policies, actions, and outcomes can be understood as a political settlement, as a series of political settlements. And those groups that are the chief beneficiaries of these settlements have holding power through their control of the economic structure, ideology, violence, rights, and rents. They define the political settlement as a balance or distribution of power between contending social groups and classes on which any state is based. The patriarchal school argues that the post-colonial state manifests and, 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 and perpetuates patriarchal rule, which has economic, social, and political dimensions. Men dominate the state and its institution with their presence and with the support of ideologies that normalize male domination and gender inequality. The patriarchal state works in tandem with and reinforces patriarchal institutions outside the state, such as marriage and the family. All these approaches recognize the state and its institutions and officials are relating to citizens in several ways, through regulation, through the provision of public goods and services, through the state's management of the economy, through the state as employer, 
and through the state as the keeper of law and order and the referee of political, communal, and interpersonal conflicts. We can differentiate the states by how they experience the states, by how we can differentiate citizens, sorry, by how they experience the state in the performance of its functions and the quality of these experiences. I believe that this is critical for understanding the nature of the state. There's much diversity in Ghana that is positive. The range of agroecological zones with their distinct natural and natural resources and environmental features is something to celebrate, as is the diversity of histories, cultures, ethnicities manifested in Ghana's rich material and non-material cultures, in the food, clothing, fashion styles, the music, dance and languages. I think we were just treated to that diversity by the Ghana Dance Ensemble a few minutes ago. There are differences that are positive because they are innovative responses to the lack of resources in certain regions. And this slide, for example, shows what we saw at WA during a recent visit to a funeral of a dear friend and colleague. We were struck by how mobility had been transformed by the widespread use of the motorcycle-powered vehicles for both passengers and goods, also by the number of women using these motorcycles to get around. I felt strongly that Accra had much to learn from how WA was managing this frugal innovation in intracity and intercity transportation. It is when diversity becomes disadvantage and inequality that there's cause for concern. It is unacceptable that in a lower middle income country in the 21st century, large swathes of Ghanaians live from hand to mouth while in enclaves in Accra, Kumasi, Takradi, and Tamale. Clubs of dollar millionaires live in another Ghana. Now I want to present the different Ghanaians in official statistics. Inequalities have been documented by researchers over the years and successful Ghana Living Standards Service since 1991 and also by the recent National Population Census. The World Bank's 2020 Poverty Assessment Report, which is based on the Ghana Living Standards Service, has found that between 1992 and 2012, Ghana achieved significant economic growth and poverty reduction. GDP per capita had risen from $410 to $1,588 US dollars. Even more importantly, Ghana became a middle-income country in 2013. The consistent growth which made these achievements possible has been marred by the fact of inequality, which has been rising steadily in Ghana since 1990 and now stands at 43.5. You, you see that in the slide that you see in front of you, that inequalities are rising just as the economy is also growing. Compared with other local middle-income countries and our neighbors, Ghana is not doing well in terms of inequalities. Out of a group of 11 lower middle-income African countries, Ghana has the fourth highest level of inequality and the worst in West Africa. While inequalities are dropping in most of the 11 countries, Ghana is one of the four countries where inequalities are rising. The GLSS data shows clearly that positive poverty reduction statistics are hiding differences that are based on location and employment status. In urban Ghana, Headcount poverty is 8%, while in the rural savannah, it is a high 
Self-employed people in agriculture have the highest percentage of poor people at 43%, while public sector employees have the lowest headcount poverty rates at 5%. The scale of operations, which is linked to land sizes, is a useful indirect way to also identify who is likely to be poor in the agricultural sector. The overwhelming majority of women farmers, 76%, are small scale, while the figure for men is 54%. Only 7% of women farmers are large scale, compared with 20% of men. With respect to access to services, I use four measures. The percentage of people using firewood, access to a decent toilet, electricity, and drinking water sources, with data drawn from the national census to illustrate my point about inequality. The headline news is that in rural Ghana, 62% of households still use firewood for cooking, while the figure for urban areas is 11%. In the case of decent toilets, 47% of rural households, compared with 65% of urban households, have these facilities. Access to electricity is impressive in Ghana. It is 95% for urban areas and 73% in rural areas. Access to good drinking water remains a huge challenge in Ghana. Only 34% of households in urban Ghana use tap water, and this is a regression from 60, 68% in 2000. In rural areas, the figures have improved from 15% to 29% over the same period. There has been a sharp increase in the use of water vendors by urban households from 3% to 2000, in 2000 to 54% in 2020. I think this figure of 54% has to do with the amount of sachet water that Ghanaians consume. Behind all these big figures, I want to leave you with three highlights. One is the persistent poverty, rural poverty in northern Ghana. The second is that poverty among unemployed people rose by 10 percentage points in 25 years. This could suggest that the social support that unemployed people have come to depend on is eroding. Number three, the sharp increase in the use of water vendors in drinking water in urban areas says something about the availability and perceived quality of the water supply system. On the one hand, Ghanaians appear to have a high tolerance for inequality, and this can be inferred from the most often used proverbs. All hands are not the same, is one such proverb. Ghanaian cultures inculcate in children the importance of avoiding the jealousy of rich people. Commonly used terminologies such as campaign, pull him down, PhD, attest to this. There's also rancor and bitterness, RMB, which entered the popular lexicon as a complaint by a sitting head of state about the penchant of Ghanaians to envy and vilify their leaders. When we collected proverbs about food during our study of the implications of land and agricultural commercialization for food cultures, I was struck by two sayings, and I realized that they were not simply about food. The first was Pentebia ye Oming. Here is how a respondent in a male focus group discussion at Esumura in the Snafo North District explained it. The rich man who has money will eat a luxurious meal 
while the poor man like myself will only eat roasted plantain and drink water. Regardless of whatever each of us eats, we are all full. Another saying, Woti popo poa, wobi di e bia na ye Meaning, if you hear someone pounding fufu, go ahead and pound and eat yours. They may be eating theirs with just Kobe soup. <laughs> On the other hand, there are signs of efforts in our society to redistribute wealth. Our kinship system, the practices of political and social patronage, embody expectations that those with more who are more fortunate will support the less fortunate in return for social capital and political power. Societal concern about inequalities notwithstanding, research and policy to tackle inequalities have been hampered by several factors. For decades, the dominant policy focus has been on poverty reduction. This has been compounded by the widespread use of a single measurement of poverty, which is the international poverty rate of $1.90 per person for Ghana. This has, made possible, this has made it possible to record huge successes in poverty reduction that do not mean much on the ground. Any household which has more than $1.90, which is about 15 cities per person per day, is not considered poor even if they all share one room, do not have running water or toilet facilities at home, and cook with firewood. The income approach to poverty thus fails to account for other relevant inequalities, such as the non-income terms and conditions of work, the amount of time a person spends doing unpaid domestic work, and the differences in access to the control and control of productive and reproductive resources. Some influential economists are also more interested in inequalities of opportunity than in inequalities of outcome. This artificial dichotomy, which apparently protects economics from moral hazards, like rewarding laziness and not recognizing merit and talent, ignores histories and structures of constraints and makes it harder to address inequalities. Accounting more fully for inequalities would enable us to see which inequalities are growing or reducing. It will also enable citizens to assess which policies contribute to exacerbating inequalities and, and which policies are creating the different Ghanas that I'm about to talk about. The different Ghanas at the end of the road. My characterization of the different Ghanas at the end of the road invites us to get behind the statistics of inequalities that I have just presented. In this lecture, I present four such Ghanas, all of them taken from my research. They are, one, the Ghana, the state forgot. The second is the Ghana of the smallholder farmer in the present absent state. The third is the Ghana of conflicts in the partisan state. And the fourth is the Ghana of illegal economic activities and the disciplining state. The Ghana, the state forgot. Surveyor Line, which represents the many fishing settlements around the Volta Lake, is an unplanned settlement established by Tongu migrants from Mepe on the shores of Lake Volta. It is only over 30 kilometers from Akosombo, the planned township built as part of the Volta River project 
but you would not know it from how long it took us to reach there by road in 1998. Its residents found it more efficient to cross the Volta in a canoe to find a hospital or a market than to go by road. The Volta River Authority's presence in that community was limited mainly to policing the lake shore to make sure that the farming activities were not harming the lake so as not to affect electricity production. In all other matters, education, health, housing, markets, banking, and finance, the citizens of Surveyor Line were on their own. One result was that the level of accumulation that was possible from fishing and farming was constrained by the lack of cold storage facilities, large distances from markets, and the absence of financial institutions. Stories about fisher folk using smoked fish as fuel to smoke more fish, even if exaggerated, point to serious post-harvest waste and losses. And this is a severe pro a problem in much of agrarian Ghana. Other areas that would have benefited from state intervention were the labor relations of the fishing companies on the Volta Lake. In 1999, members of fishing companies were still being paid only once a year at the end of the season. And in the case of child workers, it was their parents who received their wages, and some of it in advance. Around the Volta Lake, the relations between husbands and wives that, had, that underpinned household production in the lower Volta has been under a lot of pressure. In the lower Volta before the Akosombo Dam, women worked in the clam industry and established independent income streams. Once the clam industry was shut down by the dam, the women migrated to the lake as dependent wives who worked as cooks for fishing companies and in the cases where their husbands were amenable, processed and sold fish. Women around the Volta Lake became vulnerable to marital discourse and the resurgence of polygyny that was fueled by windfall fishing harvest that puts more money in the hands of their husbands. As recently as April 14th this year, a boat carrying 20 passengers capsized on the Volta Lake, killing seven people. The 13 who survived were rescued by lo local fishermen. This is not an unusual occurrence. Close to five decades after the Volta Lake was formed, it remains a world apart with state amnesia robbing its communities of benefiting from the now spent potential of the Volta Lake. In the 1960s, Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, pledged that no one should be made worse off because of the Akosombo Dam. This forgotten promise and the long-term effects of state neglect have left the lower Volta economically depressed with high levels of out-migration and schistosomiasis infections. And now the Ghana of the smallholders and the present absent state. Ghana of the smallholder commercial farmers is represented by Asumura, Kasapim, Esum, Gushi, Zongo, and Garu. This Ghana is united by the small scale of its operations, the dependence on basic technologies and rainfall, and the predominant use of family labor and higher levels of income poverty than any other part of Ghana. However, smallholder Ghana is also highly differentiated. It's a segmented space with many differences such as agroecological zones, 
and rainfall patterns that crops farmers grow, whether they are men or women, and whether they are young men or older men. At Esumura and Kasaping in the forest zones of southern Ghana, where farmers grow cocoa, they are guaranteed of a market for their crops, and they also have the added insurance of the Cocoa Life Project's capacity building and welfare programs, plus a cash premium award from Mondelez, the Confectionery Transnational Corporation, to plug some of the holes left by the present absent state. Given the substantive, substantive and symbolic importance of cocoa to the national economy, cocoa farmers are viewed by many of us as a privileged group enjoying the certainty of pricing and markets and the marketing of their crops year in, year out. However, they are also very highly indebted. And this is a result of the usual terms of private credit. You have to pay twice the amount you borrow at the end of the season. And the seasonal nature of their earnings, the growing costs of education, inputs, and labor. Many of them do not grow their own food since their cocoa farms have matured. And also because the only new lands they could use to extend their cocoa farms or to grow food was a forest reserve. They therefore experience seasonal food insecurity because of price fluctuations and shortages in food staples. The state's efforts to support them with subsidized fertilizer has been mired in political party patronage. One farmer who complained vociferously to, to us about, about this was not planning to do anything about it because he was just waiting for his party to come to power so that he too could begin to benefit. At assume where farmers grew oil, palm, and food crops, the presence of another transnational corporation, Serendi Palm, made it possible for them to earn a more regular income. The women as processors of oil, palm, and the men as contract farmers. The fact that the young men in this community prefer to grow fast maturing vegetables, mainly to make savings to finance their small-scale mining aspirations, spoke volumes about the future of smallholder agriculture. At Gushizongo, where yam was by far the most important economic and social crop, male farmers struggled to sell their yams because of the costs of transportation. They waited on their farms for traders from Kumasi and Accra to buy the crop. A trust-based marketing system had been developed to address the lack of credit. So the women would mark the crop with, a, with their own personal color. Once marked, the farmer could not sell that crop to anyone else, even if the trader failed to return at the appointed time. At Garu, where sorghum was the most important crop, a few sorghum farmers were able to sell their crop to an aggregator, Faranaya, for use in the beer brewing industry in Ghana to improve their earnings. However, Garu was highly dense in population, and this was a threat to viable smallholder farming. In this community, the women considered themselves to be excellent farmers, and yet it was the men who farmed the plots around the homestead for their sorghum, and they also had a priority in the use of the bullock plows. Women, therefore, had to travel further afield to farmlands offered on very uncertain terms that had to be renewed year in, year out. All these communities show that agrarian Ghana has serious labor shortages that are being remedied by the widespread use of a weedicide named condemn. There are also serious land questions in all the four communities. 
and now to the Ghana of conflicts and the partisan state. At Gushiegu and Donkokrum, contests between herders and farmers were a source of serious conflict. Each side had their own version of what the problem was. For the Fulani, it was that farmers make, made exaggerated claims about the destruction of crops, even for already harvested farms. Herders felt that the police and community leaders were often biased in their adjudication, favoring farmers, mainly because farmers were considered to be indigenous and herders foreigners. The herders also did not get justice when their cattle were killed and stolen by robbers and farmers, or when the herders, mostly young boys, were attacked and sometimes killed by community members. Farmers, for their part, accused herders of deliberately driving cattle through farms so they could feast on ready-to-harvest crops, a practice that often took place deep in the night, leaving destruction in its wake, but with the herders responsible far away from the scene of their crime by morning, and therefore difficult to apprehend. It's important to understand that this conflict is a land-use conflict arising from the growing scarcity of land and water brought on by population growth and decades of policies that have favored enclosures and resulted in the loss of the commons and corridors of passage that the headsmen have used for decades. These conflicts have damaged generations of harmonious community relations at both Gushiegu and Donkokrum. The problem has been compounded by the state's ineffective conflict resolution mechanisms, as well as the solution, the, the suspicion on the part of herders that it is acting mainly to support farmers. Agushiegu, the Fulani pastoralist community mentioned that they had been in that community since the 1940s. They were Muslims like the indigenous. Their children attended the same Quranic schools, and there were intermarriages between them and other groups at Gushiegu. They had also established associations with conflict resolution mechanisms and business partnerships with members of other groups. In spite of all this, they were often reminded that they were strangers. They were not allowed to participate in political campaigns or votes during elections. They had challenges with accessing health services, including the National Health Insurance Scheme. And this was particularly problematic for the younger Fulani who were born in Gushiegu. Communities conflict resolution committees in, in, in which agricultural extension officers are involved have played a useful role in individual cases of crop destruction by valuing the crops, valuing the damage to the crops caused by cattle for compensation. This work also assists the courts to award damages. However, when incidents result in the use of arms and the breakdown of peace, the Ghanaian state tends to the military. In justifying this action, government officials and the media represent the Fulani as a homogeneous group of itinerant herders who are anonymous, untraceable, and with no links to community. This view misrepresents the reality of the sedentary Fulani, and it alienates them and increases their vulnerability to attacks. And now to the Ghana of the illegal economic activities and the disciplining state. Bonsawire. It's a small settlement in, on the outskirts of Takwa, which was still standing when we visited two years after the ban on small-scale mining and the launch of Operation Vanguard, an unusual collaboration between the Ghanaian media and the state to address the environmental destruction of land and water caused by small-scale gold mining activities. However, the military operations, which has seen expulsions, arrests, 
and the destruction of equipment had taken its toll. You could see it in how quiet the settlement was. It is in the story of the women of Bonsawiri that I want to represent this Ghana of illegality. This is because in the fight against Galamse, a hidden gender drama has played out. Before the ban, studies estimated the contribution of small-scale mining at 35% of Ghana's total gold production in, 19, in 2014, with an estimated labor force of 1 million persons and a total of 4.5 million persons depending on income from small-scale mining. Several studies have also estimated that women are 50% of the labor force in small-scale mining. However, women are marginalized because of their historic lack of control over productive resources for small-scale mining, such as land and, and capital, as well as technologies. This has reinforced the gender discriminatory ideologies and beliefs about women's lack of capacity to do certain physical tasks and their ritual and cleanliness during menstruation. This results in a division of labor in which women are confined to activities above the ground, such as carrying the ore, fetching water, processing the ore, and selling mining supplies and other goods, while men are engaged in owning and financing pits, hiring labor, processing, and selling gold. This gender segmentation of the industry is what has resulted in the policy invisibility of women. The ban, which has, been, which has driven mining activities underground and further into the forest reserves, has exacerbated women's marginalization because the men no longer allow them to participate in mining. Meanwhile, their non-mining activities are suffering because of reduced patronage and the disruption of local economies. While women may not have faced the state's violence and arrest directly, they have been indirectly terrorized by the state when their husbands and family members are arrested or had to run to evade arrest. The economic crisis resulting from the ban are not conducive for social harmony in mining communities. Already, mining settlements, particularly the informal ones, are noted for high levels of interpersonal violence, sexual exploitation, and insecurity arising from the actions of criminal gangs, which adversely affect women. Despite the marginalization, small-scale mining, gold mining, offers women higher wages than alternative activities, which, are, which mostly earn gari money. As a Bonsawire woman told me, it seems to be a term for loose change. Ama, a young articulate JHS graduate and mother of three young children from Medina, who fell in love with a small-scale miner and left her older sister's care to come and live with him in Bonsawiri has seen much. Before the ban, there were the hooded men on motorbikes who came to collect their share of gold or money every Monday. The police did nothing to stop them. During the ban, it was the military driving through Bonsawiri to arrest and detain sus suspected miners. Judging by the number of still-open private gold purchasing entities around Takwa, the state needs another strategy altogether to deal with small-scale gold mining in order to harness its potential, regulate it effectively, and integrate women like Amma and her husband into one Ghana. I want to end with four messages about the different Ghanas. What do these stories tell us about the different Ghanas, and what messages can we take from the root? 
I think my first message is that it is important to re-legitimize state responsibility for public goods and services. The reason there are different Ghanas is that the post-colonial state has failed to deliver to address the social question, which is a question of how to integrate everybody into one country. This has become even more difficult to do after the state's embrace of economic liberalization. One effect of this has been the privatization or hollowing out of public goods and services. There's no longer a national consensus about the public goods and services that everyone in this country should be able to access. This has made the parameters of state responsibility unclear. Related to this, the metrics for assessing the performance of the economy have become limited to economic growth and inflation and do not include job creation and social development outcomes. Across Ghana's agrarian, rural, and urban and planned settlements, the lack of basic services goes beyond the statistics I presented earlier. There are those who are afraid to sleep at night when it rains because they might wake up surrounded by water or actually drown. Then there are the people living in communities where every smart person has a gun to protect themselves and where wearing of batakari, the traditional dress for everyday and ceremonial wear, has been banned until further notice to prevent criminals and unscrupulous persons from hiding weapons in them to harm people. There's a gender dimension to all this. Poor services increase drudgery for women and girls who have primary responsibility for care and domestic work. Even in situations where there are improvements in services, one area that has proved most resistant to change is the use of firewood for cooking. This carries a higher risk of upper respiratory tract infections for women and girls. COVID-19 exposed the state's lack of attention to inequality. Kayaye got the short end of the stick compared with quarantine travelers arriving by air. Those who traveled by air could enter and leave Ghana, while those using the land, land borders found them closed for close to two years. Supermarket owners who were lauded by the state for COVID-19 compliance could do so because they could pass on the additional costs to their customers. And like the market traders who had no margins and whose carefully balanced private credit arrangements collapsed completely under COVID-19. Water and electricity subsidies were enjoyed by those of us who have meters. State officials and employees continued to earn their salaries while self-employed people had no support during the shutdown period and the loss of income from the disruption of economic activities. My second message is that the resolution of the land and labor questions of agrarian Ghana is critical for achieving one Ghana. The state's failure to deal with the land and labor questions of agrarian Ghana takes away from its developmental credentials, which have in any case been eroding since 1966. Land reforms over the last three decades have focused on deepening land markets and not, not on questions of land use conflicts, the loss of the commons, the exploitative agricultural tenancies such as Ebunu and Ebusa, the land rights of women and migrants. The failure to comprehensively address land relations is a major factor in agricultural stagnation and the poverty of farmers. The state's labor regulation remit has excluded agrarian and informal labor relations. The gaps and limitations in the labor law, as well as the weaknesses of the labor regulatory bodies, 
are a fundamental problem for the majority of working people in both urban and rural Ghana. As we know, less than 20% of Ghana's working population are employees with formal contracts, regular hours of work, and so on and so forth. Domestic workers, kayaye, family workers, farm laborers, people in the fishing and mining communities, tenant farmers, and some of the workers lack holding power, and therefore they are unable to participate in the decisions that would benefit them. My third message is that it is critical to address the fundamental causes of conflict and reduce state violence. Those who live in conflict endemic parts of Ghana and in communities where illegal economic activities occur often contend with several challenges. One is the failure to resolve conflicts timelessly and comprehensively. And this is often linked with flawed analysis of the causes of conflict, partisanship, and other interests and the failure to harness community conflict resolution strategies, and also the resort to violence, to police conflicts. In the cases I've discussed, the military, an institution trained to protect our borders, is now policing community conflicts. This has been justified by the lack of capacity of our police force. It is arguable that capacitating the police to deliver on their mandates would promote proportionality in the use of force, it would be less costly and more sustainable. That there are military operations every few years points to the limitations of this military approach, and it also risks breaches of Ghana's obligations under the ECOWAS protocol on transhumans. State violence is a blunt instrument, and it does not differentiate. The inability to distinguish between legal and illegal mining and between sedentary and itinerant Fulani are two cases in point. It unites groups that have contradictory interests and also prevents approaches that promote the self-regulation of communities. Even more importantly, violence and draconian policing do not solve fundamental problems in land use conflicts. Other, confl other victims of state-sanctioned violence, such as market women, who have a long history of contending with state violence characterized by raising markets, evictions, physical punishment and bans would also very much benefit from a different approach. My fourth and last message is that, transform is that the transformation, transforming patriarchal rule and ending misogyny is critical for women's citizenship. This, because the Ghanaian state is patriarchal, Women and gender non-conforming groups have a particularly challenging relationship with the state, which creates a very particular Ghana for them. The alliance of the patriarchal state and non-state institutions has created specific challenges for women. Instances of the colonial state's alliances with patriarchal institutions such as chiefs to control women has been recorded by historians of the colonial state in Ghana. There were instances when all single women in certain communities were given an ultimatum to marry or be arrested and accused of spreading sexually transmitted diseases. The colonial state's policy of barring married women from working in the civil service combined with the gender segregation of schools and curriculum of missionary and state education created the entrenched gender segmentation of work that the post-colonial state has been unable to shift. The patriarchal state has left women at the mercy of misogynistic forces in our society, 
This can be seen in the increasing levels of teenage pregnancy, gender-based violence, and femicides at the hands of spouses, boyfriends, and significant others. Between January and December 2021, media, the media reported the deaths of 40 women between the ages of 20 and 66, located in both rural and urban areas, whose killers were their husbands, boyfriends, and in-laws. A most common stated reason for murders are divorce and threats of divorce, and in some cases, women were killed in the presence of their children. Beyond this, there's an alarming trend of community-based lynchings based on witchcraft accusations, and more recently, on suspicion of belonging to the LGBTQI community. All of these relate to patriarchal control of bodies, sexualities, and morals in ways that infringe on human rights and are justified through a selective reading of Ghanaian culture, which is highly authoritarian and blind. It is important to remember that the impulse that led to the lynching of the 19-year-old Madame Equia Dente at Kafaba near Salaga on 23rd July 2020 is the same one that saw two girls being arrested recently by the police to save them from a lynch mob. All of this needs to change. Inequalities in Ghana are created and maintained by the economic and social policies of the state. Ghana is a lower middle income country with a growing economy. Certain signal achievements such as rural electrification and the successful construction and commissioning of the corn dam in a time of economic reversals show state capacity. It is up to us, the citizens of the different Ghanas, to rediscover our outrage about inequalities, discrimination and poverty and to demand a recalibration of state society relations to promote a positive and productive relationship between state, the state and all its citizens, irrespective of their class, their gender, and their location. Only then would the post-colonial project retain its early promise of one Ghana. I thank you. Thank you very much. Now there, there are some people I'd like to acknowledge on a day like this. So please indulge me. I want to start with the personal and move on to the institutional. I start with Evans Kojovi Chikata, my teacher father, and Janet Fiajibe, my nurse midwife mother, for the examples of service to community and nation that accompanied our, our upbringing. My siblings and I are testament to what the, what the qualities they embodied and inculcated in us are. To my siblings, Senanu, Novishi, and Setome, what can I say? 
my first and last reference group. You anchor me and keep me grounded. Only you understand all the inside jokes. Thank you. To my mother's sister, Esther Fiajigbe, and her husband, Charles Opong, and their children, my cousins, the late Magi, Nana, Mwakun, Ampofu, Nana, Kodria, for being the closest I have to additional siblings, thanks to the extended household constructed by my mother and her sister to manage the transfers that nurses had to navigate in Ghana. To Yao Graham, my spouse, my life partner, inspiration, sounding board, confidant. <laughs> I thank you for 30 years of a productive and happy union. <laughs> to the young people who are my family at home, Susuko Black Graham, my son, Deborah Korda, Etona Magbakbe, my nieces, I thank you for love and affection and for the window you have offered me to see the future. Thank you. To my cousins, my nieces and nephews, my uncles and aunts, and to my natal families, the Chikata Gidiglo families, the Fiajigbe and Ahumata families, and to my in-laws, the Grahams and the Nutakos, thank you for expanding the meaning of family. To my sister friends, Rosemensa Kutin, Cynthia Dua Mankwa, Nakwa Kwebadu, Nane Shan, Gertrude Tokonu, Joke Akentela, Magi Ahiadeke, Christy Bedu, Clarice Kofi, Audrey Gajepo, Akosia Dakwa, and Nane Kriya Nidohu. The gift of your friendship and sisterly love is not something that I take for granted. To my OAA 78, 80-year group mates, you keep me young and a con you are a constant reminder of the 11-year-old that I was when I met you. We have been through so much. On a day like this, I also remember those who are no longer with us. To NetRight and the two coalitions, I thank you for the opportunity to work together for a better world for women and for a country, continent, and world that is inclusive and just and equitable. To Volta Hall, the ladies of vision and style, Thank you for counting me among your ranks and for being a beacon for the emancipation of women in the 21st century. To my institute and my colleagues at ISE, where I started my research, and to the IAS, where I have spent some of my best and memorable years. Thank you for the seminars, for the discussions, the research outputs from which I've learned so much from. To my research networks, whom I've already mentioned, I want to thank you for all the opportunities to contribute, to learn, and to grow, and for safe spaces and community. And to the scholars whose ideas and ways of seeing and whose intellectual politics has inspired and influenced my scholarship, and who in some cases have become dear friends and family. A few are also ancestors. On a day like this, I want to acknowledge their contributions in no particular order and with no titles, Akila Kwasoya, Tandika Nkandawere, Techua Menu, Zenebewok Tadese, Aminamama, Yao Graham, Samoyo, Amrita Chachi, and Whitehead, Naila Kabir, 
Samia Amin, Achi Maseje, Isa Shivji, Shara Razavi, and to my research collaborators, a most wonderful group of people, Akosia Dakwa, Rose Mensa Kutin, Ruth Hall, Ian Schoons, Elizabeth Prugel, Fred Janku, Adele Blackett, Marilyn Osome, Hania Shohami, Cheryl Rodriguez, Joseph Yaro, Mariama Wumbila, Daniel Eduankra, Martha Awo, Peter Atudiwe Atupari, John Joseph Te, Nanekwe Anidoho, Akosia Dumakwampofo, Michael Pesa White, Abno Odro, Osman Al Hassan, Richard Asanti, Deborah Tobra, Payosiakwa, Pitana, and Ben Kwansa. I really, really am grateful to you. Without you, all those publications would not have been possible. Lastly, to my next generation, my next generation agrarian and social development scholar powerhouses, my former and current students, research assistants, and collaborators who inspire me and give me hope. Jifa Tovike, Fosin Obing, Sylvia Mafo, Asam Mohammed, Francis Jarawura, Promise Ewe, Ajoa Japon, Esasen Christian Bruku, and Eric Tekumadu. And finally, finally, to each and every one of you who have joined me this day. And thank you, and I hope this has been a good use of your time.